The Insloan podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals, just like me and you, aged 18 and above, monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and, more importantly, more peace of mind. Also, there will be a flash sale during the Father's Day occasion where Cybionics are offering a 15% off discount for all during the 7th of June to the 16th of June. You do not need to be a father to gain the benefit from this discount. And you can find out more on the official website at www.cybionicscgm.com. Now enjoy this episode. This is the Insulone podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... I really just didn't want to feel like the chronic kidney disease had beaten me. So in my mind, I was like, I'm going to keep working. And I worked right up until two days before my transplant. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Insulone Podcast. As always, it is a pleasure, my pleasure, to have you and have your ears for the next hour or so, each and every week. The guest that I have today is Daniel Newman, who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 10 and has now been living with the condition for over 26 years. And... Daniel admittedly hasn't had the easiest time with the condition and throughout this episode, Daniel openly and honestly goes into detail around his experiences with diabetic retinopathy and a kidney transplant in 2018 as a result primarily of his diabetes management. And I think this is a difficult episode to record, a difficult episode to listen to at times, but In my opinion, it's vitally important to understand and be aware of how serious a condition type 1 diabetes is, even though, yes, we can joke, yes, we can laugh, yes, we can make light of it. But I think the potential complications with type 1 diabetes is a very important topic to speak about and to know about so that we can do everything we can and everything in our control to live healthily and happily with the condition. So enjoy the episode and I'll speak to you soon. And Dan, I would love to jump straight in. Yeah. Right. And something that you had said to us previously about your defining moment with the condition up to this point, condition being diabetes, obviously up to this point has been for you accepting the fact that you have type one diabetes. So was this something that you struggled to accept for some time? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I was diagnosed when I was 10. um, And so that was going from year five over the summer, going from year five, going into year six. So my last year at um, primary school. And I think for me, it was why I struggled, just looking back at that, is that I was 10, 11, going into my teenage years, just wanting to 
fit in with everyone like most teenagers do. But then I had this chronic illness that I didn't really understand, but I didn't understand it, but I knew I was aware of the feelings that it gave me as a child, as a teenager growing up. And I just didn't want those feelings. Um, And it was always seen as uh, a hindrance to me, or I always saw it at that time up until the point of accepting that I saw it as a hindrance and it, it was just something that would never leave me. And yeah, that was, that was just really, really, really difficult. Do you feel as if you didn't accept it more so as a result of kind of like the social impact of it, or was it the fact that you actually had to, you know, do the things that you have to do to monitor your diabetes? It was both. I think it was both. I think the social impact of wanting to fit in with friends at that time, but then also wanting to do what other people my age were doing, particularly in my later teen years, like going out and obviously drinking, which you can do, but I wanted to do that without thinking about the consequences in terms of the diabetes management that came along with it. But then also the actual management of the diet type one is, was, and I was diagnosed in like 1996. So this was late nineties where none of this tech that we have nowadays was easily available. So it was actually having to finger prick and wait a long time to get your results and not knowing what was going on during the day and just having these snapshots and, the way that diabetes type one was spoken about to me back then was very much from a, from a negative perspective as well. And I really took that on board and um, yeah, it was just, yeah, the social side, also the actual management and just the relentlessness of the condition, but not really understanding that side of it because no one spoke about the, the mental and the emotional side of, managing type one it was all just a physical and if you do if you do a then b will happen and that's how it was it was it was viewed in my in my experience anyway very simplistically like oh it's just this is what you do and it should be fine but that mental side that was really missing for you to kind of realize the mental side of it and i think that's obviously a big part of diabetes that anyone living with diabetes has their own kind of relationship with it, you know, and, and learning about quote unquote, learning about the mental and emotional side of diabetes is something that happens over time, I feel. But for you, because it was kind of presented to you in this almost constant negative perspective, was it almost a shock to you, the mental and emotional impact that it can have? Yeah, definitely. And I think a realisation was actually un- le- learning what diabetes distress was and diabetes burnout. And that was only, and I think I only came across those terms when I was being part of the community or maybe a bit before then. But actually having these words and and which then allowed me to identify what I was going through all of those years ago because diabetes burnout, just for argument's sake, I didn't know what that was just like, Oh, I, c- I can't do this, 
diabetes stuff anymore. But when you know that there's a term for it and actually other people experience it, I didn't feel as alone and it just made sense. It was just answers to answers to questions that I didn't know that I had, but I did have them, if that makes sense. Hmm. So, 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 yeah. so when you were kind of going through those, those younger years with your diabetes and leading into the teenage years and you're saying, obviously, obviously you want to be the same as other people and go out drinking and all these kind of things, which we can do. Yeah. But did you find yourself kind of being rebellious towards your diabetes management because of that kind of social impact of it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I don't know whether, I think I might have been 15 or 16 at the time. I can't remember the exact age, but I know it's in my teenagers where I was just, I just had enough and I knew, I was like, I don't want to do all this testing anymore. What's the point? But I wanted to stay alive. So I said, well, if you just take insulin, you know, you're going to stay alive. And that's, that kind of, that stayed with me for a number of years. Um, so, so yeah, there was that side of it of, so I could go out and have fun, but because I had negotiated, wrongly negotiated with myself, that I don't need to check my levels but I just need to take insulin, I'll be okay. But actually, that's not how it how it worked at all. And looking back, some of the things that I did, it was it was like quite I'd say dangerous in the sense of going out and drinking and getting drunk, but not being aware of like what eating after a night out of drinking and the carbs in certain foods and would have the impact it would have on my levels then waking up with really high levels the next day and stuff. So, so yeah, there was, there was that side of it of just wanting to go out like everyone else, which, and just do what they were doing, but not worry about any sort of implications that I, I needed to. So you were kind of coming at it from a place of, well, I have diabetes burnout, but you obviously didn't, know it as a term back then you just knew that's kind of what you were feeling and you were viewing it as this thing well i'm not really gonna be proactive in terms of checking blood sugar or whatever it might be but what you said yourself i'm just gonna take insulin so i don't die yeah effectively yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. that's kind of what my mentality was back then and that stayed for for a number of years because it was just, it was the way that I could cope and I couldn't cope at that time. And looking back now, Dan, how would you define what diabetes burnout is to you, given the experience that you've had? Because like I said, I feel we can all almost have our own experience and relationship with it. And burnout might mean something different to any person living with type one. So when you look back on that time where you were absolutely feeling burnt out what would you define that as or how would you kind of describe it yeah that's that's a really good question so i would describe it as the point that you reach where you can just no longer find the motivation to manage your diabetes and because that motivation is gone you just in a in a sense you just you don't care but you do care subconsciously but maybe consciously you don't care 
and everything diabetes related can be just seen as a negative having to do an injection is negative having to check your levels is negative having to treat a hypo is a negative having higher hypers is a is a everything is an absolute negative and you don't see the link between okay yes this isn't great but i'd need to do this in order to um keep myself well or to be in the best place that i can be and that's how i would really describe burnout and for me my own personal it's just everything was negative my levels i detached so much my personal value as a human to those levels where and that would mean i was either a good person with diabetes or a bad person with diabetes rather than somebody just testing their levels and you have some numbers and then you have to take action so so yeah that's how they describe the burnout so looking back then on what a typical day might have been like for you how many times would you have checked your blood sugar or how many times would you have taken insulin was it just kind of constantly the bare minimum yeah so there would be days days i would go without checking my levels or maybe i might check one day yeah once every three days or maybe i'd go oh five six days a week without checking and just go on how i felt which obviously isn't the right thing to the right thing to do so um so yeah i'd i'd, I'd do that sorry what was the other part to the question how frequently you would have checked your blood sugar and and how often you would have taken insulin yeah so that's for but for the insulin i would have taken more often than i would have checked my levels because i would have been like because oh, i was like i need this to stay alive but when i was taking the insulin it wasn't like related to the amount of carbs i was taking it was just oh i think this meal is eight units so i'm going to take eight units but that meal could be, this is extreme, but could be 200 grams of carbohydrates. But because I think it's eight units and I have no idea about, or had no idea about ratios or anything, those eight units might not cover, probably wouldn't cover the 200 grams of carbs. So there was that side to it as well. So were you seeing more consistently than higher levels because you felt as if you weren't taking enough insulin or were you seeing quite frequent low blood sugars because you were kind of just guessing how much insulin you needed? I, I would say probably the higher levels because maybe I wasn't taking enough insulin, but then I also wasn't eating as well as I could have. And again, wanting to just fit in. So mm. growing up in like London at that time, like for and it probably still is the same for um, teenagers growing up in London, maybe all over. But it was about going to like the chicken and chip shop after school, <laughs> having whatever, and then having a like panda pops or some some kind of sugary drink, or just eating rubbish after school. But then when you do that and you don't take the insulin, then you're going to be running a lot higher than you should be. That's why even from my own perspective like i was diagnosed when i was 19 and i've had this debate or even this conversation with people probably hundreds of times now at this stage around the quote-unquote best time to be diagnosed yeah and i will rarely meet somebody living with type 1 diabetes who would say that 
they would prefer to be diagnosed at a different time to when they actually were. Like anybody who was diagnosed as a child, I've never heard them say, oh, I would have loved to be diagnosed when I was older. Or anyone diagnosed when they were older, I've never heard them say, I wish I was diagnosed as a kid because I wouldn't know anything different. But even from my own perspective, because I was diagnosed at 19, I felt as if I kind of skipped all of those younger years and our kind of school years and young teenage years, I feel as if were, as I was also, were influenced more by the people around us. And I know for a fact, if I was living with diabetes at that age, I would have been doing the exact same thing too. But because I was diagnosed at 19, it was almost like I was more confident to make different decisions around my diabetes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas as a child, we're, we're influenced a lot easier by the people around us. Yeah. I know, I know, I know know exactly what you mean. It's interesting. I had this conversation with somebody quite recently as well, just saying that I do think that if you are diagnosed as an adult, it does come with its own challenges because you've also had all of these years where you've created this identity and who you are, but then something like diabetes comes along and then you have to change that and you have to change all of your routine and everything else overnight. But then on the flip side, when you are diagnosed as a child, you're navigating, like you quite rightly say, the influence of other people. And at that age, you are influenced by those around you. And you don't want to, as I've said already, you don't want to, you don't want to stand out. But then would I want to be diagnosed older than I was? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> because it then, yeah, because then it has its own challenges. I think yeah. maybe if, if I could change anything, it would be just that whole acceptance of accepting that I was living with type one sooner than I did. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really hard one because you, you're, you're so right there where you talk about being diagnosed at a young age, you are influenced by people around you. So if this then, Dan, went on for a number of years where you were kind of rebellious towards your management and you couldn't accept the fact that you were type one, when did you finally start to accept that you were living with diabetes? So I would say probably around 13, 14 years after I um, was was diagnosed, I think, yeah, 13, 14, or it might have been a bit after. So I would say roughly 20, 2010, on 2010 to 2013, that's probably, I'd say, the time. Um, and part of that and was, although we're no longer together, but my ex-wife at the time, so when we got together, it was 2010. That was, I had somebody for the first time in a while in my corner who was kind of supporting me with with type one. And it was a bit of a reason why I need to look after myself. And so that, that really had an impact. And then in 2013, I started working for um, JDRF in the UK. And so that then brought me in, I was now in an environment with other people who have, who are living with type one. There's so much knowledge in the organization around type one. And I was learning more about the condition. 
I was learning to be comfortable with um, how how I am managing my my type one. I never, I didn't always speak about it publicly or o- as openly as I do now, particularly in the office and even like wider on social media. I was doing that then. But it was the start of building that confidence to be able to, to which then enabled me to talk more openly about living with living with type one. So those two, I would always say, are the kind of key key moments for me it, when it comes to managing my my type my type one and accepting it. I would say, yeah. So the impression I'm getting is almost like what had the biggest impact was almost kind of being part of a community or even being aware of the fact that there are other people out there living with type one when you're obviously involved with JDRF and you see people with type type one diabetes all the time. Yeah. And I think like that's almost the unique sort of, uh, let's call it a problem for lack of a better word with diabetes is the fact that it's so personal and the vast majority of the time, anybody dealing with it or anybody living with it, the people around us and the people closest to us likely don't live with it as well. So it's kind of like it can be that isolating sort of condition. But when you're involved with a community and you see, oh, my God, yeah, there's other people that live with this thing. It's uh, massively beneficial. Yeah, yeah, you're you're totally right. It was that because I also think with type one that you and I could, we could work, we could sit next to each other in the same workplace and not know that the other person has type one. You could effectively, you could go to, I'm not saying I don't advocate for anyone to do this, but you could, I could go to the toilet and do my injections. I could hide me testing my level so you would never see. I could have a hypo and you'd be like, oh, why is Daniel drinking orange juice? Or, oh, he's just eating a few jelly babies. Oh, Daniel likes jelly babies. And you can go through that, through that for a number of years. And yeah, it is isolating and it is, it is easy to to stay within your comfort zone and not talk about it and hide it but actually it it genuinely for me anyway and i'd say it i feel it does more harm than good because i feel once you are able to talk about it and you are able to almost own it and talk about it in the way that you want to talk about it that leads to the acceptance of it but again, acceptance isn't just like a, oh, do you know what? I'm going to wake up today and talk about type one and, hey, look, by six o'clock in the evening, I've accepted it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not like that. At all. So how do you feel then your life changed when you did accept it, Dan? Because if you had spent these 10, 11, 12, potentially 13 years being diagnosed, almost neglecting it or being rebellious towards it how did your management change once you came to terms with it more and finally did accept it yeah so it it was more from what i can remember it was more about testing my levels more understanding what was happening with my levels looking for trends being aware of and back then I wasn't using an insulin pump, so being aware insulin after, I don't know, exercise would do or insulin, like just understanding more about how insulin 
works and carb ratios. And I think even within that time as well, I'd gone on a, a Daphne course as well. Actually, I think it was called Bertie. But anyway, a carbohydrate counting course, which again opened up my mind to, oh, wow, this is so this is what happens with carb ratios, etc. So, yeah, there was just this real kind of influx of knowledge, which I'd never had before, which I now had, and it just helped. And there was a sense of empowerment as well. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it just made a big difference. That's the big thing about living with diabetes, I feel, is the fact that it is at times incredibly difficult to live with, as we both know, and for whoever's listening, they, I'm sure, know. But when we have that confident understanding or we're consuming information, whether it be videos, podcasts, reading, whatever it is, the more information that you have, inevitably, the better you're going to manage your diabetes to a certain extent. Because all information regarding your management is going to be beneficial. Because the more that you know, the easier that it can be. Because you can create your own approaches around managing certain types of meals or managing exercises. And I know before we press record, we were talking about you doing 5K runs, having information around how to approach those sorts of situations or scenarios is massive when it comes to diabetes. Yeah, definitely. And even even now when it comes to like the 5Ks that I do, I wouldn't say the management of my levels is where it could be. It can definitely improve. But then there's the other side to it of, okay, I need to accept that this will be a work in progress, but focus on the goal of, okay, what is this movement and how is this movement going to help me as a as an individual and my health rather than focusing on, I can't manage my levels when I do this. I'm not going to do it. And again, this is a lot easier said than done. And of course. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it just is because it stops. I, I feel it does stop people living with type one to doing exercise movement, whatever what you'd like to call it. And I know I was one of them as well because I was so worried about how my levels would react. And even now when I do the runs, I'm really worried about going hypo. But then I also say to myself, well, actually, I'm going to do this. 30 minutes, 35 minutes max, it's going to last. How likely is it I'm going to go hypo during that time? And then it's just talking to myself about that. Obviously, I always carry hypo treatments with me. I have, so I have more than enough. Um, and I use a Freestyle Libre too. So I have, I have the low glucose alarm on um, just for me. And I'm not saying that anyone, this is not medical information advice at all but I don't have the high one on because I feel that that would distract me from running and I know after I finish running okay I can treat whatever my levels are with insulin if, if I need to so yeah there's there's so many things that just go in into just like exercise or movement but you have to consider when it comes to mm. type one it, it's it's hard and I understand as well why people wouldn't do it um, so yeah, by the way, apologies if you hear my dog barking. Not at all. <laughs> get, get them on the podcast. <laughs> what type so, yeah. of dog do you have? <laughs> um, so I, the reason why I laugh, so I have two dogs. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a bit of context for 
before I could tell <laughs> you to breed. So when myself and my ex-wife, we were together, we got two dogs. So, and then obviously where we've gone our separate ways, I have, I have the dogs. So I have two chihuahuas because, and I always have to give, because people, when I say I have chihuahuas, people's faces are like, why do you have chihuahuas? <laughs> so that's, that's why we have, uh, well, why I have um, the two chihuahuas, but they're not like the yappy ones. And I don't dress them in clothes and do all of that stuff that people kind of think that if you have a chihuahua you do they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're just they're normal dogs so um, you're yeah. carrying them around in handbags not at all not at all what are they like temp temperament wise dan um temperament wise so my ones are they're, they're really good um one of them he well he, he when he was younger he was attacked by um, another dog and so he has anxiety when he goes out and if you were to see him when I was walking him and he would bark you'd think oh he's he's a terrible dog but actually at home where he's in his own safety he's he's a really nice dog they're both really nice dogs they're not they're not yappy or anything mm-hmm. like that I, I couldn't deal with the yappy dog <laughs> yeah they have to reschedule the podcast if yeah, they're yeah. too yappy. <laughs> yeah. So if you do hear them, it will only be if um like they hear people kind of outside or one of my neighbours live in the flat if one of my neighbours comes in or something. But yeah, they you they they're quite quiet. They they're cool. They're good dogs. Yeah, happy, happy to get them on the podcast anytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even just going back to what we were saying there, Dan, and what you said, rightly so, around the complexity around something as simple as, well, quote unquote simple, as going for a 5K run. And it's something that somebody who doesn't live with type 1 diabetes doesn't appreciate fully because yeah. the, the thought that goes into a 30-minute run, it can be very intricate and complex, to say the very least. And it reminds me of a conversation that I was having in inside the program that we run and one of the girls in there had like a takeaway meal on a Friday night and nailed her blood sugar and stayed flatline the whole night. And we always celebrate those sorts of things because yeah. it's, it's always a massive yeah, achievement. Yeah, yeah. But I asked her, what strategy did she use or how did she go about it in terms of insulin timing and dosing and splitting and all these different things? And she outlined it perfectly the approach that she took in terms of splitting her insulin dose, how she calculated how much insulin to take, the timing of it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like something as simple as getting takeaway food mm. can, can just be yeah. so complicated. Yeah. But the important thing for everybody to remember living with type one is yes, it is complicated. That's the reality of the condition sometimes, but when you have that understanding and you have that confidence and you have that knowledge around you and your own diabetes, you can do whatever you want. And that's the important thing to remember, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, knowledge equals power and then it equals better decisions. So I agree. And sometimes I was, I've was been thinking about this quite recently as well. When you actually just take a second to think about like take that example of having a takeaway and her having to detail all the steps that she she took to achieve that. 
it's mind blowing when you actually just stop and think about what we have to do on a daily basis. And not even the, the hourly, minute, but whatever you want, just to function. Hmm. And it can be mind blowing. And this is why I can also understand completely why people get burnt out and they have this stress because there's so much that goes on. Yeah, it's it just sometimes I don't think about it. And but recently I have been thinking about it. And it's just it's mind blowing. Even after all the years I've been living with type one, like it's just what we have to do. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. It's uh, something that I try and flip the perspective on. And what I mean by that is we almost will instinctively react or instinctively take notice of the negative sides of diabetes because that's we kind of just focus on negative things more than, more than positive things naturally yeah. and when we do that it's very difficult to try and stay in that sort of positive outlook position that can be massively beneficial but if we can try and flip the perspective around even use that takeaway as an example yes it's complicated and intricate and and uh frustrating to do and try and work out but i was having a i can't remember who i was having this conversation with recently but we were talking about almost gamifying your management in the sense that every takeaway that you have i'm in no way saying you should have a takeaway every night (laughs) far from it but if it's almost like a game where i tried this last time it didn't work you know what can i try this time and then rather than focusing so much on you know, oh, my blood sugar dropped or my blood sugar spiked or all these negative things that we can kind of get in our head. If we can f- try and consciously focus on, oh, I did that thing really well or I went out for the 5K today and my blood sugar actually behaved very well. What what did I do or what did I not do that potentially led to that? And if you can try and pinpoint and highlight and focus on when things do go well, Mm-hmm. we can almost like try and flip the perspective on uh, the negative to the positive as difficult as it is yeah totally agree with you a hundred hundred percent it is easy to focus on on the negative and it's easy to focus on the numbers and if you are using tech and you see that your levels are higher or outside your target range but actually, well, you might have, I'm not saying this is right, but you might have levels that are higher than where you want them to be. But overall, your time in target for that day is 60 to 70%, which in a way is still a win. Like, and it's about where can where can we find those, those small wins? And yeah, just the flipping the view. So, and again, we might touch it, but where I, where I live with retinopathy, when I used when when I first ha- I was having the laser treatments and all of this stuff, and having these appointments, I I was of the mindset, oh, they just it's just trying to save my sight. They were trying to save my sight, but actually I've had to flip that and say, well, the treatments that I'm having is about improving my sight from where it is now, mm. because it just felt of 
I was just living in a state of fear. If I, I was constantly just worried about it's saving it. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And maybe it might happen at one stage, but it's about, I can't, fo- I can't focus there. Now I have to live where I am. And actually, if you actually know why am I having this treatment, this treatment is there to help me. Okay. So how's it going to help me? It's going to help me by doing this. Okay. So it should lead to, um, an improvement. And I know my eyesight might not go back to how it was because it's not the nature of ret- it's the nature of retinopathy. But if you live in a state of you're just waiting for that worst case scenario to happen, it's not it's not good. And I've just noticed a change where I've where I've shifted my my mentality. So what you talk about flipping the view, I completely agree with you. That's obviously something, Dan, that I wanted to talk to you about during this episode. And we briefly spoke about it before we pressed record. And obviously, we wanted to know that you were 100% comfortable talking about it. And it is something that's really important for people to understand and be aware of and realize that sometimes this can be the reality of diabetes. You know, as much as we can we can laugh and joke on social media and these kind of things. Sometimes it's important to really understand the reality of it. And obviously you are somebody who has experienced complications up to this point. So how did your retinopathy come about? As I've mentioned before, I think this obviously leads from the number of years that I wasn't looking after myself as best as I, I could. That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list.